A loving Father, our hearts and our minds, or in our hearts and our minds really, uh, the comfort that comes from knowing you as an eternally uh, steadfast and good God who is committed to our well-being this morning has just, as we've been here, it's raised up or raised up in, in songs of praise to you. Hearts that are giving thanks now, we have said we'll still be giving thanks in 10,000 years' time. And we have sung about, about who else commands the cosmos like you and then commands such affection from us. Would, we, would you be blessed by our adoration and our worship of you this morning? And now as we turn our hearts to your word, would your spirit come and convict us in truth uh, that it would shape our lives for your glory and for our joy. And we thank you that we can talk to you like this, that we can come to you in prayer like this because of the relationship that we have with you uh, in and through what Jesus has done. He has made us a part of your family by faith in his dealing with our sins on the cross and then just incorporating us into this family, this new life uh, in his resurrection. We give you thanks this morning. Amen. I saw you put it here, Luke. I just wonder where it went. Well, most of you are aware that I think that that I love the cinematic world. In particular, I am a big fan of the Marvel Universe. Um, it's kind of okay if you're into DC Comics, but they're just sort of like the, the try-hard cousin of the Marvel world, but that's okay. I've also become, just sort of got into the stories of Star Wars another franchise that I've come to like. It took me a little while to merge out of the shadow of of my mom telling me this is an evil series, have nothing to do with it. Uh, And now I feel comfortable watching it um, and reflecting on how it it speaks into culture. I love to get wrapped up in the storyline and just see how it's going to unfold. However, I've noticed that when I'm at home in particular and I'm watching say, uh, a series or a movie on TV or on Netflix, if the plot line of the story kind of turns or starts to, to move into uh, some space that I don't like, that I'm, that I'm feeling uncomfortable with, it's, I start to get this feeling, this isn't going to end the way I want it to end. I begin to get anxious and I begin to have these imaginary threatening uh, conversations in my head with the producers like, you better end this the way I want this movie to end. I get pretty invested in, in my movie watching. It took me four goes uh, to get through the first episode of When They See Us. Uh, that is a traumatic little series. But I get like this because I'm not sure of how the story will end. I want it to end a certain way. I hope it will end a certain way. And when I start to think that it may not, here's how I bring comfort to my soul. I just get on my phone and I Google IMDB, that um, movie database place. I head straight to plot summary of whatever uh, movie I'm um, warning where it says in big red letters, warning, spoiler alert. I'm going like, no kidding. And I just scroll straight to the bottom of the plot line, the storyline, and I just make sure the right names are still in play. I don't care how the movie gets there. I don't care how they survive. I just want to know that certain people get there intact. I had to do this with Will Smith's um, The Pursuit of Happiness. I can't, that movie, I've seen it ten times, still traumas me. Uh, when he's held up in that subway with his son, there's crazy dude outside just trying to kick the door in. How's it going to end? 
got this invested too into a series on Vikings, the story about Ragnar Lothbrook. Um, and I just needed to know how this story went and how it unfolds. So I, I got on Ancient History Encyclopedia that I subscribed to and I was reading through his story. And once I know what's going to happen, once I know how it ends, even if it's going to be too good, I just journey with peace and I can take whatever comes. It's easy to do this when the stories are movies. When, when the stories can be looked up on IMDB or whatever it's called. When the plot line becomes overwhelming, it's heading into landscapes that we, we, we don't like. We just Google the outcome. And knowing the end kind of shapes our experience of the movie. Now, some of you are like, it robs me of my experience, but I, uh, there's occasions where I've just got to know how it ends. In life, we don't always get to know. We can't just Google the end of our story, how our story is going to end. We can take educated guesses, make well-laid plans, hold optimistic outlooks, but there's always a degree of uncertainty on how this story is going to end, how our story is going to end. Add into it this wrinkle of misfortune, a diagnosis of illness or a disorder, or maybe it could be that the whole bottom just falls out of your world. And we begin to wonder and we begin to get anxious about how this story is going to end. How will my story end? Is, my, is there some way we can inject hope into this story? And yet, time and time again, the scripture is filled with descriptions of just that. How it's all going to end. How God drops in hope into the story. Every now and again, when the plot line of, of promised hope seems to vanish in front of God's people, primarily because they are the ones that have gone off the script and begun to write their own scripts, begin to mistrust the author. But into this despair, into this landscape, God often drops spoiler alerts. Alerts of how he will restore hope to people if you've been trekking with us through micah uh, the first three messages of this series it's a book and that's just kind of thick with a loss of hope a loss of hope on the ground as there seems to be no answer to the lack of of justice the lack of mercy there is there is no kindness towards anyone being exercised by the powerful or the less fortunate uh, just and marginalized, uh, just constantly receiving the injustice of this world. And Micah has painted a pretty grim picture of abuse as over-entitled rulers and power brokers and culture setters use their positions of privilege to devour uh, the weak rather than to vent, to, to, to rob them of hope rather than to, to breed and foster hope. This is Israel at this point. God, though, at the birth of Israel, this, this nation that he describes as the least of all nations, made it very clear that he is deeply concerned with justice, that it would be a hallmark of his people. And, and he is deeply concerned with the well-being of the marginalized, so concerned about it that he gave Israel laws, life hacks uh, to live by, 
that laid out how they were to show justice uh, to, to, and, to, and to do mercy, show mercy, to be kind. Laws that accounted uh, for and eventually evened up the inevitable gap uh, in inequity that would continuously develop between the rich and the poor. Laws that enshrined the character and the heart of God into culture that would become the way and the walk of life that Israel was supposed to live by. So that his people would be a light in a dark world. They were to model life with Yahweh, a humble people living before a God of unparalleled provision and promise. However, as we have read, they have failed to model a life in relationship with God. And so, rather than receive the promises of blessing, they now face, also written into these laws, the promise of tribulation, the promise of exile, the loss of blessing. You see, Israel had constantly perverted and detested and commercialized God's good design. And not only now because of that was hope on the ground gone, but hope had vanished from the horizon as God through his prophets announced his promised judgment towards just continued rebellion through exile. As chapter 3 ends, Zion is spoken of as being plowed like a field and Jerusalem has become an overgrown ruin. These two conjoined pillars of, of nationalistic hope, if you like, from which the knowledge of God was to shape their lives is now in ruin. It's just vanished. It's bleak. And hope in the promises of God have vanished over an Assyrian horizon. And Israel would be thinking, oh, I wonder how this story ends. Oh, is, is there a way of knowing hope? If we outrun the promises and, and grace of God, enter the spoiler alert. Chapter 4 brings a hopeful shift in gears. Uh, David Pryor in his commentary says, uh, the appalling gloom of, of the final verse of chapter 3 is matched by the glorious prospect painted in the opening verses of chapter 4. Here God gives this spoiler alert of hope restored. And what God intends for the, for the future of these people. And it's stunning. And it brings hope. It's this incredible picture of hope. One of the reasons for the beauty of this picture promised is that, it, is that in this passage, in this picture, it is a complete contrast to what we've seen so far in this book. One of the things of beauty about this promised hope is that it's completely out of harmony with the reality of the world, of what even we experience. And yet, it is fully in harmony with what we would want the world to be. But this is a picture that we all long for. In verse 1, Micah says, This picture of hope shall come to pass in, in later days. This phrase, later days, is just one of the many timestamps that appears throughout this passage. So there are allusions to both the present and to the future. However, later days in Old Testament context generally means an unspecified future time. Not a, not a particular time, but an unspecified future time. Or a prolonged 
period rather than an actual date. Later days. And in this later days is a picture of the reversal of the situation. And one that will be for a period of time. Could be short time, could be eternal time. But later days, this promise, this restored hope is coming. Micah is anticipating this great reversal, this transformation of hope restored at some time in the future. But the, the whenever and the however uh, long uh, it takes is unspecific. But one thing that is emphasized, one thing that is made very clear is it shall come to pass. It's promised, it's guaranteed and, and already uh, hope. From our vantage point, we know that this picture of hope embraced uh, the remnants, the restoration of Israel as they come out of Babylon, uh, back to um, their homeland, if you like. We also know that, that embraced in this, this time to, to come is the birth of the Messiah, of Jesus. And as Israel waited for the restoration on the other side of their exile, so we too wait for the ultimate fulfillment of a universal rule and everlasting peace. When, when in the New Testament, this promise of Jerusalem coming down, this heavenly picture coming down in Revelation 21, when God places all things under Jesus' feet and there is universal peace and this picture that we see here is actually an eternal reality. But what actually is this picture? What, what does this eternal reality look like? And as I've realized, the time kind of doesn't permit. But in short, it's the reversal of all that sin has done and broken and corrupted in the world. Being made good again. It begins with this backdrop of a mountain. Which is imagery for the place where God both rules and has his presence. We had to think of his law and his word. There on this mountain, in this house of Jacob. This house of Jacob calls to mind the temple which was located in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And we're to think of a place where God dwells, where people come to encounter God, where, where, where God is made known and where he manifests himself. And then we see this picture. Uh, it moves to a sea of people from all kinds of backgrounds, just spontaneously, willingly, if not joyfully, flowing to this mountain why are they doing that they're coming to learn how to live as god would have us live they're coming to hear about his ways to see how to walk in his paths and then we see as this this we see in this picture a a global impact as god now appears to be on the move not confined to this mountain but in the world at large as his law and his word is applied to both domestic and state affairs. As people flock and come to this mountain, to where God is made known, and as they travel away, his law and his word and his heart is in their character. And now as they go out, the influence of that begins to, to deal with marriages and, and, and to settle you know, things there. It begins to deal with leaders and begin to settle national disputes and, and affairs. And as this moves out this leads to a picture of unparalleled peace and abundance of provision rather than use our resources uh, to, to just to consume to take to make weaponry to get what we need 
we see this picture of reversal of weapons repurposed to become instruments that cultivate life. Now, rather than all of our resources are being used for the means of just perpetuating death, such is the dramatic change that all of our resources are, are used to, to cultivate life. In this new environment, there is a deep and pervasive peace and each person just lives in contentment. They, they're just sitting under their fig tree, enjoying their vines, enjoying the fruit of their labor. And they are without fear. They are without fear from ruler or neighbor or beast. It's a beautiful picture, is it not? But when we look around in our world and as Israel would have looked around in their world, we would say when and where. We haven't seen this total picture yet. How can we be confident that this picture is that's yet to fully emerge, we've seen little bits of it, is anything more than an idealized dream of an optimistic preacher? Well, Micah lets us know that it's not his idealized optimism. This is a statement of intent from God himself. If it were the musings of Micah, it wouldn't be worth the paper it's printed on. But as verse 4 ends, it is the mouth of the Lord, the hosts of heaven, who has spoken this picture of hope. Here God refers to himself in military terms. The, the phrase Lord of hosts is like a supreme commander of all the angelic forces of, of heaven and earth. It's, it's this God who, who, will, who will make sure this promise is delivered, that this picture of hope comes in its fullness in later days. It's the kind of God then who delivers out of slavery. Even it happens to be the, the, great, the hand of the greatest superpower in the universe. Hey, Israel, think back to when you were in a situation like this once before, when you were slaves in Egypt. The Lord of hosts brought your freedom. This is the kind of God who can even overcome death, we are to think about. In Psalm 46, the psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the, mount, the holy habitation of the Most High. God in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations raise, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the mouth of the one who has spoken this promise. And perhaps, and I don't know. But Psalms like this would come to the heart and the mind of the Israelites. Who hear Micah speaking this terrible uh, 
future, but then also this amazing promise beyond it. And that's what we are supposed to do when our world, when the bottom falls out of our world. We are supposed to go and make sense out of this world by the scriptures, not by our environments, not by our circumstances, not by how we feel, but by going back to and seeing what has God actually promised me? Well, because of the undeniable security that's wrapped up in verse 4, Micah kind of speaks on behalf of this uh, faithful remnant that will exist, this faithful scattered and afflicted people who will trust in the Lord of hosts. Others may continue to follow uh, their own small gods or continue in their ungodly practices, but they will walk in the name of the Lord. The character of the Lord will mark the way they walk. And they will find hope beyond this looming devastation. The faithful who will survive God's judgment are these ones who have walked with a single-minded faithfulness to the picture of hope that's been painted. Though the earth has given way, they pin their hope on this promise that has come from the Lord of hosts. What do these faithful warriors of the Lord of hosts look like? Well, they are the lame and they are the ones who have been cast off. The Lord says, in that day, declares the Lord, which is a phrase that speaks of a time in the future, not right now, I will assemble the lame and I will gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. I will make a remnant, those who have been cast off, pushed to the margins, neglected, a strong nation. There are two groups of people being represented here, the lame, representing the pain caused by brokenness inside, if you will. And those who have been cast off, pain caused by the brokenness of circumstances. Whether the pain comes from inside or whether the pain comes from outside, God is in the business of restoring it, of healing it. Lameness, affliction, exile, all storylines that God redeems, rescues and restores. When they turn to him, when they begin to cling to him and come to him and flow to him. It's interesting here, uh, the specific use of this word lame, as it's used here in this verse, is very, very rare. And one of the only other places it's found to be used like this, this word lame, is in Genesis 32, where God makes Jacob lame. Same word. He gives him a limp after wrestling with him throughout the night. Jacob was deceitful and dishonest and just an all-round scoundrel. He used his power and his wiles to get what he felt that he was entitled to. But he, he also had known deep pain and loss. He'd known what it was to never be accepted by his father. Never feel like his father loved him at any level. That his affection was always towards this other son. He knew what it was to then also know the contempt of that son, that brother, towards him. In fact, the only person who cared for him, and it wasn't really in a, in a functional way at all, was his mum, and, and she dies. He'd also been on the other end of deceit and misuse of power. Jacob had found what it was like to be lied and stealed and cheated to. Jacob is about as dysfunctional and broken a person can be. 
a bit like Israel. Perhaps a bit like you and I have been at times or possibly could be. But God meets him in a place of total exile. Behind him is the frayed relationships uh, that he has with his father-in-law. In front of him is the broken relationships that he has with his brother. And he is in this chapter in 33, in Genesis 33, he has sent all he has in front of him. All his possessions, all his wealth, all his family. And Genesis tells us in very powerful way, Jacob was left alone. He has nothing of his own strength left. No resources, no power, nothing. And it's in this space and in this landscape that God met Jacob and he wrestled with him throughout the night. Jacob's solitude, his, his humble position, his lowly position serves a spiritual purpose or a spiritual principle if you like. Jacob must encounter, or this is really the only way Jacob actually gets to encounter God without his protection, without his possessions. Just Jacob coming by himself. God in his humility meets Jacob on equal terms as a man. But it's a brutal affair lasting all night. And finally, God breaks the deadlock of this this wrestle, this contention, by merely just touching Jacob's hip, making him lame. However, this does not stop the contest. It just changes the approach of the contest. Now, rather than wrestle with God as an opponent, as someone to be at odds with, Jacob now clings to God as the source of blessing, which is eventually given. Out of this, a new vision of hope on the other side of struggle. But it comes from a changed approach that takes place in Jacob as he contends and wrestles with God. The result of this wrestling match was a renewed Jacob, someone who is now teachable, someone who is now humble, and someone who is now able to be used by God. He would, though, always be lame. He would always have this limp. But this limp was not a punishment. It was remedial. Forever recalling how he got this limp would remind him of the experience of exile, of wilderness, of aloneness. And of how God restored him in that. And covered his past. Changing his name from Jacob, which means one who cheats, to Israel. One who contends with God. In a way... Using this specific word kind of plays on this imagery, this historic story. So too now, God plans to bring Israel low. To contend with them. To make them lame. So that they would cease at some point with this rebellious wrestle with God. As one to be at at odds with. And at some point, begin to cling to him again as one who would bring blessing. Israel must change their approach to God in exile, in this terrible landscape. Micah's Israel, this lame and cast off remnant, would eventually emerge from exile themselves with a, with a new name, the Israel of God. A people with no king but God, no social order but his word, and no vision but the promise of God. 
And they will walk in his ways and paths, but it will not be an easy walk. And not always an easy path, but it is navigated by clinging to God. Israel would barely see, if you like, the grand picture of of all that is painted by Micah. But faithful Israelites would cling to the promise. And they would live accordingly, knowing that this promise awaited them. Verse 8, this group of lame outcasts is now described as being a watchtower, or a tower of the flock, as the ESV has it. And that they will live as a continuation of the former promise to King David, that one day a king who can bring this pictured hope that's been painted will arrive. And this king will come from their offspring. It's supremely important. Verse 8 serves to stress that there will be survivors. A remnant will survive from this catastrophic horizon that's just in front of them. It's not that God will start his plan again anew, but rather through lowering his people, he will transform and restore them and make them fit for purpose. Make them once again a people whose strength is found in their God and not in their wiles, not in their craftiness, not in their self-sufficiency. The phrase watchtower of the flock places an emphasis on what God can do with broken and scattered people as they allow the Lord to reign over them, as they, be, they become a stronghold, an unshakable force in the history from whom God's promise would emerge. But not in their old ways of, of seeing themselves as entitled, but those who with a limp find their strength in God knowing how the story ends, that, it will not merely, that they will not merely be judged and punished and, and, and wiped out, but they will be transformed, gives them a picture of hope for the now, for the right now, that holds them through the darkest times. And Micah stresses that this begins with people returning to the Lord. And those who return to the Lord are never discarded. No matter how vile they've been, They are transformed like the weapons of destruction and chaos into instruments of life. We would say they are given a new heart. They're a new creation. Israel never fully experienced the reality of this picture. They had to live in faith of the coming reality. Those whose lives were lived in the trust of this coming promise were ultimately saved on its arrival. As Genesis 15, 6 and Romans 4, 3 makes clear... The righteousness of Christ's works work their way backwards to those who trusted, who who trusted in the promises of God that they would arrive. It's in this sense you see that there's no real difference in how Old Testament and New Testament people are saved. It's always by grace through faith in the promise of God to deal with the human condition in a way that redeems, restores and rescues without fully crushing them and faith in that knowing that and knowing that in the end the promised picture of hope will come it held israel in place for centuries and as the world raged around them they clung to their god the god of their promise how do we bring this forward quickly unlike israel who's 
whose picture of how it ends was mainly uh, yet to be experienced, mainly yet to be experienced promise. We live in a more developed reality of this delivered promise. In Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews reflects in chapter twelve, we have an even better way to approach God, to be in His presence, to have our sins dealt with. But strikingly, in verse twenty-four. This new place of meeting God is not a place that reminds us of our continual and ongoing need to deal with the present problem of sin. No, this place is God coming to us to permanently and completely deal with sin, but not by uh, the blood of our offerings, the efforts of our hands, of anything we can do, but by the blood offered on our behalf by a faithful and gracious God. This is the story of the cross. It's, it's a better blood, it, it, it reads there. Abel's blood, this imagery, calls out against guilt, against sin. But the blood of Christ calls out forgiveness and redemption for sin. In Jesus, the function of the temple is replaced. Its necessity to be the place of promise disappears forever. This is underscored by the end game picture in Revelations 21 where the new Jerusalem has no temple because the Lord Almighty, which is a similar phrase to the Lord of hosts, and the Lamb, that is the imagery of Jesus' sacrificial work for us, are there in the midst of people. And by their light, by their presence, by the the truth of their knowledge, will all nations walk. You see the picture? It's fully complete. That Jesus is this new reality that fills up the vision of Micah is again underscored in Matthew 12, 6, where Jesus radically declares that something greater than the temple is here, meaning I am here. I am the new place to come to and know God and not just live in hope of this promise, but have this promise within you. Experience this promise now in your life and have the hope of this promise infused into your reality. Can you see how even now we have a greater reality of what they hoped for? In John's Gospel, in chapter 4, there's this profound conversation between Jesus and, and a woman. And Jesus is going after her heart and he's exposing her brokenness. And she says, ah, this is all a bit hard. Let's switch this conversation to worship. Classic avoidance. And Jesus says to her, oh, yeah, no, no problems. Believe me. He cannot get any more forceful. A day is coming and is now here when you are neither going to worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but you will worship in spirit and truth. Not Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, but in spirit and truth. And Jesus shifts the categories from geography and function into relationship, fueled by truth. Jesus is making the picture clearer and clearer that he is the new locus and activity of God. He is the new Jerusalem. He is the new Zion. That these things are gone and now fulfilled in him. I am... The new temple, the new promise of God that is not confined and not limited. In John 2, Jesus says, even when you destroy this temple, self-reference, not that one over there, I will raise it up again. And in three days, when I do, 
People everywhere in all the world will be able to go to God through me. And what do we find at this temple when we come to this temple? Well, restoration of broken hearts. That is not temporal, but is eternal. In Luke 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is what we find as we come to this new mountain, this new locust, this new God with us. Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. Come, come truth, come listen, come hear. For I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Jesus we see an ending to the story that paints an unimaginable hope, not, not merely for the future, but to be experienced right now. It can be ours right now. This restoration, this healing of brokenness is not just a promise for the future, but in Christ it's something that comes into your heart now. And as it does, as this experience of spirit and truth comes, it warms our hearts with affection for God. My prayer is that you would encounter that. That you would experience truth and that truth found in Christ would warm your hearts in affection for God and hold you in place knowing that it's the Lord of hosts who has made this relationship, who has given you these promises. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this book that just keeps digging up these profound truths about you. And your desire to rebuild and restore us, even though we have this continual desire to destroy and ruin. We thank you that in Jesus, the pictures of the realities of renewal that are pictured back in Micah begin to come into our world, begin to become realities of our hearts that that we can have now. But we have this promise that one day, completely unhindered by all the brokenness of the world, We will experience this in its total freedom and fullness. There will be no fear. Every person will sit under a fig tree, so to speak. Every person will enjoy the vine. All those, the remnant, those who God has, who have turned to God, will enjoy this incredible experience, this picture of hope that we have seen. Oh, that we would turn to you. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.